Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. All right, well, good morning, White Sulphur. Hey, real quick, let's just pray together, uh, bring some, some focus here. Uh, before we get into the passage uh, and a couple of announcements. So, Father, uh, thank you once again for uh, just a beautiful Sunday morning, especially this time of year, that we can come out and we can uh, enjoy our time together uh, with friends and family here at church, that we can create new relationships and, and build stronger, older relationships, that we can come here and we can glorify you through our, our words, our deeds, through, the, through our generosity, through our singing, Lord. It's just all of today is a gift. I pray that as we move into this time of focusing on your word, that you would help us to uh, really do that, to focus on on what's going on here. That uh, for those that have come in here uh, with hurts of all various kinds, whether they be emotional or physical, whatever the kind of suffering it is that they've, they've brought in here, that for a moment that that would be relieved, that they would find some peace, that they would be able to encounter you through your word. And so, Father, I pray those things over this congregation at this time. I pray that you would continue to enable us to be uh, a light in our community, good neighbors to our community, that you would encourage these endeavors uh, all for your glory. And, Father, I pray that uh, the rest of my words today are for your glory and for your people's good. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so really quick, just a couple of things before we get going. Um, the children are, are able to follow Luke, who's our children's ministry guy, leaving right now. You're welcome to do that, or you're welcome to stay in service. Either one, whichever you are comfortable with. Um, we have a couple of pressing things, okay, time-sensitive stuff. So uh, there is, uh, again, I, I try to be careful because we're live streaming here, um, but we have a connection to some soldiers that are overseas uh, that are see- we're seeking to send them care packages. And what this looks like means... Uh, it could be a, a financial, it could be actual things on this list, but really, I think what might even be most important are letters of encouragement, right? Saying thank you for being over there, thank you for doing this, we, we miss you, we appreciate you, here's what's going on at home, and kind of be that connection back to the place that they left behind for a time. And, and here's the thing, this is time sensitive because they're moving around a lot, and so when we ship the packages, they kind of have to chase them until they find those soldiers. And so we want to get this stuff sent out as soon as possible. I'm talking like tonight, tomorrow, the next day would be great if we could get this stuff uh, to Troy, who's back in the sound booth, get these things to him. If you want to contribute to the items going in the in the uh, care packages, probably the best thing at this point would just be uh, financial or gift cards so Troy can get exactly what he knows that they need. But again, those handwritten letters, have your kids drop pictures for them, whatever it might be, but let's let them know that we care about them and let's get this stuff out to them again, very time sensitive. So just a few things uh, beyond that to celebrate. So uh, our the uh, the record, as far as I've been able to tell, for our church sending these uh, shoe boxes out at Christmas time is around 65. All right, that's about the record that we've ever been able to send, and we are about 15 away from breaking that record. 
So if today everybody would just take one or two more, we would break the record that we've ever had for sending those out. That would be really exciting. We could clear out that table, get them back this next week so we can send those out and get those to the recipients on time. That's a really exciting thing that we have going on that I look forward to each year. Next week is probably the most exciting thing for me. Next week, we have two baptisms happening here at White Sulphur. That's a big deal. Right? That's something to celebrate, to get excited about. That's worth, yeah, that's worth clapping over. Like, like glory to God, right? That there's baptisms happening at our church. The, the baptistry is going to be filled up, right? That's going to be used. That God is going to be glorified in that special way next week. There's people making public professions of faith saying, yes, this is what I have decided. I want to serve the Lord. I want my community to come around me and encourage me and hold me accountable in that way, right? And support each other. There's all these amazing things happening especially next week. So next week's a great one to invite friends, to invite relatives, to make sure that we come, we support, and we celebrate the decisions that uh, these two people have made. So very exciting stuff happening in that way. And then, uh, again, uh, last week, David filled the pulpit for me, which, thank you, David, I really appreciate that. The church is just blessed to have more than one person that's able to do that, right? And we, ha- we have a couple of people that are not only able but willing, willing to fill the pulpit. And there's not a lot of churches uh, that have that blessing of being able to uh, rotate in, in and out as they need. Coming up in December, we're going to be uh, going into a mini-series based around the Advent season. And this is really exciting to me because we're going to start with uh, the first week of December leading up to Christmas. It's going to be hope, joy, peace, and love. And each week we're going to focus on one of those. And each week we're going to take time to really see how does the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right, the baby being born in the manger, the incarnation of Jesus, how does that bring hope, joy, peace, and love to the world. And what, probably what's most exciting to me about this season and doing a series like that is that uh, it's easy to go along with the whole, you know, Christmas is the most wonderful time and most happy time of the year for everybody. And I'm one of those people that does get a little bit more excited around the holidays. And to my shame, I enjoy the pumpkin spice lattes, right, and stuff like that around the holidays. I really lean into it. And my wife just kind of rolls her eyes, you know, we've kind of switched roles somehow, and I don't know how that happened. But uh, the reality is that I know that that's not true for everybody. I know that a lot of times around the holidays, it can be the most painful time of year. It can be some of the most isolating times during the year, whether it be uh, remembering a loss, in the family that happened around that time. Or uh, maybe there's, uh, for some reason or another, a significant amount of distance between you and those family members that you wish you were celebrating with. And so whatever the reason might be, we know that it's not always the most cheerful time for everybody during the holidays. And so I hope that this series is going to do exactly what the titles for each sermon suggest, bring hope, bring joy, bring peace, and love, all rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I think all of those things find their source right there in Jesus himself. And so with that, that means that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be finishing up our series through the gospel of Mark, which we started back in February. We took some time off during summer to cover some psalms. And really the point of this series has not been to dissect each uh, individual passage, but we have been going passage by passage through the book. Our goal has been to kind of capture the bird's eye view of Jesus' life and ministry. That's been the goal of this series. What does the big picture look like? So we chose Mark because Mark moves quickly. 
He goes, and then this happened, and this happened, and then this happened. That's how he moves through his gospel. Whereas like Luke and John, they slow down. They really get into detail. They open things up more. We wanted kind of the gospel in a nutshell. And so we went to Mark. Well, and we titled this series, Good News for Hard Times, like you can see behind me. And the reason for that is that the word gospel literally translated means good news. Mark starts off his writing by saying, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's where that part. And then for hard times comes in because it's very likely that this gospel, this good news, was the first written scripture in the hands of persecuted Christians of the early church. So Christians that were likely worshiping in underground tombs next to dead bodies because that's the only place that they could hide where they wouldn't be killed while they were worshiping or fed to wild animals or whatever the case may have been. They were likely holding even maybe just pieces of Mark's gospel, of Mark's good news about Jesus Christ. And those are hard times, right, when you're having to worship Underground, And yet the gospel, the good news of Jesus that Mark has recorded for us is still good news for the hard times that we're facing today. And we can go into the application of that later. But as we've been going through this, like I said, we've been looking at this broad picture of the life of Jesus. We've arrived today at the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. So we're going to be in Mark 14. You can go ahead and Turn there, Mark 14, starting in verse 1. And we'll get to that in just a second. I just wanted to give you a head start. The other place, if you wanted to turn, would be Exodus 12. So Mark 14 and Exodus 12, you could go to both of those and and be ready if you wanted to follow along with me. Now, here's the thing. I realize that when I'm speaking, especially when we do like a Facebook live stream or something like that, I really have no idea who's listening. And so uh, one thing that I wanted to say is that if you're here this morning or if you're listening online or whatever the case may be and you're not a Christian, maybe you've stumbled upon this, maybe, you know, your grandma sent you the link and she's like, please just listen to this. Uh, And you're like, this is nonsense. It's a fairy tale, all of this. I just wanted to gently push back on that for a minute because I know as we go into Christmas and the holidays, I know as we start to look at some of the miraculous things that are about to happen in the life of Jesus, they can all become a little bit seeming like fantastic But the thing about the Gospels, and especially Mark in some ways, is that he takes the time to root these events not just in uh, not just in some kind of philosophy that is kind of like up there, right? But he roots them in historically verifiable people, historically verifiable places that are still there today that we know existed, historically verifiable. Holidays that are still happening today. And so as we look at these things, they are rooted in history. There's a grounding to them. They're they're not just nice sayings. They're not just little proverbs that have no attachment to anything historical. But these events happened. These people existed. And so as we move on from that, I just wanted to take some time and and remind us that these things are, are real. And so they have real meaning for our lives today. That Jesus took... Uh, Jesus' atonement for our sins took place in history. It's a historical fact. And so that means it can have practical, real meaning for our lives today. Now, in the season uh, that we're about to step into in the story, it's Passover, the celebration. It's important that we understand some of the basics and the the backgrounds of this festival before diving into 
the passage this morning. So sometimes farmers or gardeners, what they will do is in fall, they'll plant seeds in the ground, let them overwinter so that they pop up in the spring. Like I know in California, we do this a lot with garlic. We'll plant garlic in the fall, we'll let it overwinter, and then it comes up in the spring. And kind of what we're seeing today is the fruit of some, some overwintering that has happened. So back in Exodus 12, 1 through 14, let's go ahead and read that together. This is going to lay some of the groundwork for us when it comes to what we're going to read in Mark 14. So Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, Then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it for the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it under the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff on your head. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will not pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will stri- for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And so we see in Exodus that all the faithful, the people of God who did place their homes under the spilled blood of that perfect lamb, they were spared. And what was happening is that Jesus, the Lord, had actually come to his people who were enslaved in Egypt. And it had been 400 years of this. He shows up on the scene. He says, it's time to set them free. The Pharaoh is saying, no, I'm not going to set them free. And every time that God makes the request, you need to set my people free. And Pharaoh says, no, the Lord sends a plague upon the people. Nine times this happens. And on the 10th time, he says, if you don't do it. I'm going to send an angel of death into the land. And the angel of death is going to visit every house. And every house that does not do what I just read, painting the blood of a perfect sacrificial lamb on its post, that that when the angel goes to that house, if it does not have that blood, the angel is going to take the firstborn male, both of man and beast. And it's going to be a dark night in Egypt. And there's going to be mourning. And wailing, and it's going to be terrible, so you should just let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And the Lord sends the angel of death. And our point is not to open that up necessarily this morning, but we pick up the thread there. 
that we're going to follow all the way into the New Testament. Those are the seeds that are planted that are then overwintered for a couple thousand years until Jesus arrives on the scene. In fact, we follow uh, this thread of imagery. If we were to pick it up and start following it all the way through to the New Testament to John 1. And in John 1, John the Baptist, he comes out of the wilderness Right, like a crazy man wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey and, and preaching. I mean, just a, a real uh, wild guy that comes out of the woods, a prophet from God. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. But you have to cap- capture the imagery here. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we go from the imagery of one lamb, right, uh, kind of being the, the covering for a person or a family in a home to Jesus being enough to cover the sins of the world. And so the seeds are starting to sprout from John the Baptist. He recognizes Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover feast, the final sacrifice The once-for-all atonement for sin. The spotless Lamb of God. God is providing the perfect sacrifice to cover the sins that were actually committed against Him. He says, humanity has no chance of saving itself. I'm going to have to do something. So again, He pursues. He goes to His people. Just like in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. God goes to them. Where are you? Where are you? Right? When they're caught in slavery, He goes to them. I will set you free. And again, Jesus pursues his people, and even today he is pursuing his people. So then if we continue, we're following this thread, right? We pick up in Mark 14, and at this time, the Passover is at hand. I mean, it's the season for it. This is what's happening. They're remembering what happened in Egypt. They're thanking God. This is a festival that they have been doing year after year. And preparations for this meal are being made. The themes of God's covenant with Israel, sacrificial lambs, blood atonements, they're all heavy on the people's minds. And you can see why Jesus chose this season, right, to not only institute the new covenant, but to make that final sacrifice, that complete atonement, because the stage had been being set for thousands of years for this moment. Jesus didn't just say, oh, that's going to be the good time to do it. No, it was planned. This was all pointing to Jesus from Exodus. This was his moment to arrive on the scene. So you can see that the seeds that had been planted so many centuries ago in Egypt have finally come out of winter and are about to sprout. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read our passage this morning. Mark 14, starting in verse 1. But I felt that context was necessary to understand the weight of the moment that we're stepping into. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head, but some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? 
She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. When she has done what she could, she has anointed my body in advance for burial. Today I tell you, whatever the go- whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, that she has done will be also told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Whenever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were there reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who was eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to, to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed, and broke it. And gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the, shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther and fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you, don't, so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting Enough! The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. That's our passage for this morning. So the first point is that Jesus gives himself 
for love. And that's what all of this is a big setup for, is that there's going to be this great pouring out of Jesus himself. We know, like we've covered in the beginning, that the fulfillment of the Passover and the solidifying of the new covenant between God and man happened on the cross. Right When that sinless Lamb of God, just like John the Baptist was proclaiming, died on the cross, bled, right? This blood was spilled as the atoning sacrifice for people. In our place, Jesus poured himself out so that the wrath of God against us would pass to him. We get to stand where he should stand, and he stands where we, we should be standing. We switch places. It's substitutionary, and we have to capture that as we move through these final passages of Mark. He poured himself out for us. And so one question for this morning then is how does this fact change your life? Like I argued in the beginning, these things are rooted in history. They're historically verifiable events. So how does it practically change your life? How does it go from being a nice thing that we post on Facebook, right? Or that we put on a Christmas card to being something that causes me to live differently? Does the outpouring of love from Jesus to yourself fill you with motivation to do the same? J.C. Ryle in 1859 wrote, A cold heart makes a slow hand. If a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will rather feel, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? He will fear wasting time talents, money, affections on the things of this world. He will not be afraid of wasting them on his Savior. He will fear going to the extremes about business, money, politics, or pleasure, but he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. I think that's how it starts to apply to our lives. When we see what Christ has done for us, there should be nothing that we would hold back from doing for him or in his name or for the gospel or to further the kingdom. Our life belongs to him. As Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, that 12, 1 and 2, that we are a living sacrifice, right? That so long as we live, we will live unto Christ. And he says that even if he dies, that's even better because then I get to go be with Christ. That all of life is for Christ because of what Christ did for us. And this is something that I believe Mary understands. Point number two is that Mary gives perfume for love. Now there's something we have to catch here. We're going to read it again, starting in verse 3 of Mark 14. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you. And you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this, this perfume, it's not just any perfume. There's something very different, very special about it. It's not like a perfume you might pick up at the mall. It's not like perfume you might pick up at a specialty shop that's a couple hundred dollars. No, this perfume would have been equal to roughly a year's salary at the time. A year's salary. 
And so that got me curious. I went and looked, and as of 2022, the average annual income in the U.S. is around $74,000. And what I couldn't figure out was that individual or household, but it doesn't matter. Think about an annual income, right? She just poured out about $74,000 worth of perfume if we were to equate that to today's money. I, I can't imagine doing that. She, she did something incredible. The value of a thing determines what we are willing to invest in it and sacrifice for it. So the nicer the object, the better we're going to give to it, right? If I have a really nice sports car, I'm not going to put the cheapest Walmart tires on it. I'm going to put nice racing tires on it. If I buy a really nice house, then the renovations inside the house are probably going to be pretty nice. They're probably not going to be the cheaper countertops. They're probably going to be the marble countertops or the nicer appliances, right? The more value I see in a thing, the more I'm going to invest into it. And that's exactly what this woman has done. We see this also with the widow a couple weeks ago. She had absolutely nothing left to her name but a penny. And she comes and she drops that in the box for the kingdom. And Jesus says she just gave more than all of the Pharisees had ever given And then we see this woman, who I believe is Mary, pours out the perfume. She sees Jesus. And what I mean is she really sees him for who he is. Not just with her physical eyes, but the eyes of her heart. They've been opened. Her faith sees him as the Savior that has come for her. In fact, I think she has a better grasp on on who Jesus is than all of the other 12 disciples. I think she does. I think she gets it. Because over and over, Jesus has been saying, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die soon. I'll be resurrected. I'm going to die soon. He's been communicating this in different ways and at different times, but, but over and over. And Peter keeps rebuking him for saying it. Peter doesn't get it. The other disciples are scolding her for doing this, but she knows exactly what she's doing. This woman has listened. This woman has paid attention. This woman has faith. And she knows exactly what's going to happen. And you almost find this kind of Um, this kind of odd peace about this situation where she knows he's about to go die. She's anointing him for burial. And so what can she do? She finds the thing that is most valuable to her, that she will probably never, ever be able to replace. And she pours it out because she says, that's the best that I can give him in this moment. And she does not hesitate Jesus says that the woman did the right thing by pouring out her most precious treasures because he was about to leave. Right, So it's in preparation of his departure. But can we not make the same argument that we're in a similar situation anticipating his return? They're there in preparation for him to depart. We're in preparation for him to come back. The world is not actually that much different in this Moment, She prepared for his departure. We prepare for his return. What are you willing to pour out in light of eternity? What is more precious to you than your soul? What are are you willing to hold back, even though it might be used for the kingdom to reach people in your neighborhoods or your communities? Is there really anything that could be more valuable than preparing for that return? These are going to be the two greatest events ever. In history, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, that was, that was a marker of human history that literally shaped our calendars. The next time 
that he's here will be the end of calendars. We won't need those anymore because the, the rest of the agenda is to, is to spend eternity with him in joy and peace and love. The souls of friends and family and coworkers that have yet to hear the good news. How are we preparing them for his return? What are we willing to pour out so that they may be passed over? This brings us to three. Judas betrays for greed. So we see this buildup. Jesus really is the ultimate example, right? He gives of himself everything. He left heaven, and then he lived a physically a pretty hard life and miserable at times. And then he literally goes to the cross, dies, probably the most excruciating death you could think of in human history on the cross for us. He gives of himself for love. He moves towards the people that hate him and would abuse him and would have him killed. He continues to move towards them, not away from them. And then Mary, she's following this example. She's getting it. And she says, I'll give everything that I can in this moment. That's this perfume. I'm going to pour this out for love because I love my Savior and what he has offered me. And then there's this sharp contrast with Judas. And Judas is just, it's a heartbreaking story to meditate on the life of Judas. He never actually loved Jesus or any of the other disciples. Judas did what a lot of people today do. They show up to church, they maybe post some religious stuff on Facebook, and they they give the general appearance of loving Jesus. But you have to get below the surface of Judas to find the problem. Because on the outside, it all looked good. He was one of the 12, man. He was on the inner circle. Right? He was right there with them. He was out preaching. He probably performed miracles with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. But he has no joyful willingness to sacrifice and be poured out for the sake of Jesus. In fact, it's, it's revealed that his, his greed is the determining factor by which he makes decisions. In verse 10 it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So verse 11, that's key. And when he heard this, when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. And so he started looking for the opportunity to betray him. So it wasn't Christ that Judas was hanging on to. It wasn't Christ that had a hold of his heart. It was greed. It was money. Probably some reputation mixed in there. But that was the determining factor on how he would make decisions all the way up to betraying his friend to the cross. That is what happens. That's the ugly outcome of a heart that has been captured, entangled by sin. These are the kind of decisions that people start to make. Now listen to the distress that this causes Jesus, even while he knows it has to take place. So in verse 34, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Jump to verse 41. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. So there's, you could do a sermon series on the life of Judas. A diagnosis of what what went wrong. Why did he make these decisions? But we don't have time for that, so we're going to focus on one thing here this morning. 
Sometimes the worst hurts that you will ever get are from people who are Christians or call themselves Christians. And really, these are two categories that we can find. The first is that they might really be Christians, but they're still dealing with their own sin. And that's going to happen anytime you get any group of people together. There is no perfect church. Every church is made up of people that are sinners forgiven by the grace of God that are still fighting sin, trying to put sin to death, and we're going to bump into each other. And there's going to be offenses, and there's going to be hurts, because everyone here is still sinning until the Lord comes or they die and go to heaven. That's the reality of the situation, but that doesn't mean that they don't still hurt when that happens. Or category two, they are Christian in name only, like Jesus. And that is the reality of every church also. The story of Judas is really both fascinating and tragic. Like I said, he walked, he ate, he lived with Jesus for three years. He preached, he performed miracles. And listen to this. Jesus, being God, knowing everything, nothing hidden from him, knew who Judas was. He knew his heart. He knew how it would end. And he still washed Judas' feet. And even at that very last supper, where Jesus knew he was staring into the eyes of the one that would betray him, Jesus made sure that Judas had a seat at the table. In fact, in other gospel accounts, when Judas arrives with the Romans and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to arrest Jesus, Jesus greets him and says, Friend. That's the word that he uses. I don't know about you. This has been very challenging for me this last week studying this and the the interactions between Jesus and Judas. The fact that he would still call him friend. The fact that he washed his feet. He made sure there was a seat at the table for the betrayer. is very sharp and impactful for me. So like I said, until Jesus returns, we're going to be bumping into each other. Right? Even in the closest inner circle of Christians, there's going to be times of offense. Because we're still a work in progress. Sometimes we're going to offend each other. But when we look to the example of Jesus, I want us to, just like, just like Mary pouring out her, her perfume, I want us to look to Jesus as our example and say, what can we do to be more like that? So when we look to him and we see, how did he interact with even the one that would betray him? How can I be more like that? How can I extend that kind of radical grace that the world would never agree with? Because we see things going around all the time saying, don't cross an ocean for someone who wouldn't jump over a puddle for you. I see that all the time. That's not Christian. That's not a Christian sentiment. If that was true, then I would have no hope of being saved. Because the Lord never would have left heaven to come for me. How can we be more like Christ? So I'm going to leave us with three questions. Nathan, you can join me at this time. We're going to take communion here in just a minute. Go ahead and get your your cups out, your can openers if you need them. Um, three, Three questions to kind of chew on today and maybe for the rest of the week, okay? Here they are. What do you hold tightly to? If it's Christ, what you love can never be taken from you. If Christ is the thing... That your hands are on. That's the thing. He's the one that you're holding on to. Then that will never and can never be taken from you. He has you. You have him. And that's a done deal. But if you're holding on to your career, 
and you're unwilling to pour that out, you're, you're, if you hold, try to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it, right? That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. Number two, how will you use all the things that can and will be taken away from you at some point? See, when you die, you don't get to take this stuff with you. Your money, your health, your time, your home, your car, your family, your friends, your church building, your country. And you can keep going on and on and on. How are you going to use those things? See, Mary, when she saw Jesus in the room and she saw her perfume on the mantle, it just made sense in her mind to pour out the best of what she had in that moment for Christ. Not to keep it on the mantle as a source of pride in the future or to milk it for the rest of her life. To try and give her herself the best possible life that she can or make herself the most comfortable. She said, I'm going to give this to Christ in this moment. How can we use what he has given us as tools for the kingdom? Number three, how are you preparing to suffer well for Christ? This is one of the things that haunts me as a pastor. Because I believe that one of my obligations is to help prepare, prepare the congregation to suffer well. Whether that's persecution that comes in in the future, or whether that's a bad diagnosis that you get next weekend. See, Peter and the disciples were not ready for that. They talked a big game, but when rubber meets the road, they were gone. The sheep scattered. How do we not do that? How do we not be Judas that chases other pursuits? How do we see Christ as all-sufficient, as all-beautiful, as everything that we could possibly need and say, that's enough, come what may? I think the first step to all of these is trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus as the final and authoritative payment for all the sins that you have and will commit in this life. If you do that, if you trust in Christ, then your debt is paid. Your debt is paid. Your, your conscience can be clear because Christ has stood in your place. He will cleanse you from all of the unrighteousness that you've ever been and you are forgiven and more than that. It goes beyond just a debt clearing, but you're welcomed home to the family. I've said this over and over, but I, I just, I have to say it, that, that he's not just a judge that says, okay, you may go free, but then you are adopted into the family. You get to spend holidays with them, right? You, you all of a sudden have this family of other adoptees that have been brought in, and you are united with Christ, but you're united with your new family. And so this morning, I'll just do that. Do that. Place your faith in Christ. Because then you get, to, you get to join us, and you get to start preparing for his return, just like Mary prepared for his departure. And that's what we're doing. That's the mission Preparing for his return means going out, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to follow all that he instructed of us. It means reaching our community. It means being good neighbors. It means being on mission. So when you trust in Christ, you get to be a part of that. You get to come work shoulder to shoulder with us, and we get to do this together. And it's no longer a, a, a kind of a, a lone wolf effort out there. So with that, we're going to take communion. Go ahead and open your cups. Let's do the, the bread first. When we take communion, I, I give this every time. Um, this is for Christians. So just like we talked about in the beginning, I gave the, the history, really, of Passover and how it led into the Lord's Supper. This is a memorial for those who have made that covenant with God. 
we're memorializing in a very spiritual way um, the, very, the very agreement that we have with the Father. We place our trust in his Son and he forgives us. And so if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure this morning, that's okay. And I would just encourage you just observe and learn and ask questions afterwards. And I would love to have that conversation with you. The other thing to be careful of is that Paul warns us in the New Testament that if we have um, unresolved conflict with a brother or sister that we know we could bring peace to. Right? That depends, that could depend on us to bring peace to that situation. That we should do that before taking communion. So just with those reminders, go ahead and open the bread. We're going to read straight out of our passage again this morning from Mark, starting in verse 22. He says, As they were eating, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take this, this is my body. And so we take the bread together this morning. And we'll prepare to take the drink. It says in verse 23, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so what we do is we do this in remembrance of him, and together we take the cup this morning. Father, we are, we could spend an eternity, maybe we will spend an eternity just being grateful, living in this place of gratitude for what was done on our behalf. Pray that you would make us like that woman that poured out her perfume, that we would give all that we have for you because you gave your life for us. Make it real to us. Let there be an impact on our lives today. Continue to breathe life into us. Continue to help us be the hands and feet of your son in our communities, making a difference, sharing the gospel, bringing light and love and the warmth of Jesus to a dark and cold and hurting world. Father, I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may go in peace this morning.